Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. Hello, old sports. Welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. We have a very special episode for you today as I was honored to be joined by former MLB manager Bobby Valentine to discuss his forthcoming memoir, Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. The book will be released on November 30th and is currently available for pre-order. You can also go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and enter for your chance to win an autographed copy. Thanks for listening to the Hello World Sports Podcast on the Sports History Network. Remember to follow us on your podcast app of choice for more great sports history content. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. All right. Well, hello, old sports, and welcome to the Hello World Sports Podcast here on the Sports History Network I am honored to have today as our special guest, uh, former Major League Manager, uh, all-time great Bobby Valentine, and he is here to talk about his new memoir, Valentine's Way, My Adventurous Life and Times. Bobby, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you have a big audience, and I hope they tell all their friends about (laughs) Valentine's Way, which is coming out on November 30th. So uh, tell us a little bit about the book. What what made you want to write it now? Well, actually, a uh, really fine sports author, uh, Peter Golombach, who was uh, born in Stanford, Connecticut, which happens to be my hometown, gave me a call one day and he said, hey, you know, I see what's going on. It looks like you have a little time. Why don't we write a book together? And I said, well, what's that going to take? He said, well, I'll call you and uh, I'll give you a topic. You talk about it. I'll put it down in words and uh, we'll see if we have a book. And as a matter of fact, uh, after six long months of um, figuring out which uh, little episodes of my life would make a good read, uh, we put a book together and uh, I I think we have a pretty good one. And I've actually uh, that was actually my next question that I had planned to ask. I've been a I've been a big fan of uh, of Peter Golenbach. I've read a few of his books uh, going back uh, quite a long time. He wrote a book years and years ago on the the Yankee dynasty of the fifties and sixties. It was one of the first sports books that I read when I was a kid. So I've been a longtime fan of, of Peter. So I'm, I'm he was a good choice to work with. I would say. Well, I think he chose me, and I was uh, <laughs> proud to work with him. Thanks. So um, I want to kind of jump around a little bit here, um, you know, knowing that time is limited. So uh, talk to me just a little bit about sort of your early days in baseball, sort of growing up. You were a big football and a baseball player in Stanford, right? Yeah, from Stanford, Connecticut, uh, you know, in in the um, 60s, as I was growing up, you played sports all year round. There wasn't an idea of being conditioned or being uh, specialized. So. Yeah, I played as many sports as possible. Luckily, uh, I had little athleticism and I had a lot of speed and speed really helped you excel in whatever sport you were playing. Um, And so I I got on the field, got on the court, did what I had to do and uh, had a great time doing it. 
So I, um, I, I grew up sort of, I grew up in the New York area and my father worked in Stanford for a lot of years. And so we, uh, we, wow. we've, we've been to your restaurant many times. So I would go and he would, uh, when I'd be going back to school, he'd drop me off at the, at the train station and we'd have lunch at Bobby V's beforehand. And I remember one of the first things I remember telling, he remember, I remember him telling me, and this is when you were managing the Mets was, yeah, they talk about Bobby Valentine around here and they say he was a good baseball player, but he was a great football player. So why, why baseball over football in the long run? Well, you have to think of the genesis of that. You know, in, in Connecticut, um, football was played where you dressed up and you went out, went out to the game and watched the game. So a lot of people watched me play uh, football. And I had really good teammates and really good teams and good coaching. And uh, I ran the ball. And when you run the ball and catch the ball, you got a chance of doing something that people stand up and cheer for. So I did that often. Uh, I guess uh, 50 or 60 times during my high school career. And um, baseball was uh, the spring sport where weather was lousy. No one liked to sit around in the the rain, sometimes the snow. So not many people got to see me play uh, baseball. So, you know, there was that perception. Boy, was he a good football player. I never really saw him play baseball, but uh, he, he really was a good football player. So that's how that lasted. And, um, you know, the, the decision, I had a football scholarship to go to University of Southern California. I was recruited by a couple 300 schools around the country. I visited over 20 of them and finally uh, chose the place where I could play both football and baseball, supposedly, and where I could actually play baseball as a freshman. And uh, that was the agreement that uh, Rod Dato, the baseball coach, made with the football coach, John McKay. At the time, even though I was going to be on a football scholarship, I wasn't going to have to go to spring practice for football. I could go to spring baseball and play uh, varsity sports. So I signed that letter of intent to go there. And uh, after I signed it, the next thing I knew, I was drafted uh, by the Dodgers as their number one draft choice. I decided to, uh, as Al Campanis gave me the choice, I could either go play against the best players in the world and professional baseball or go and play against the best players in the pack eight conference of uh, NC2A. <laughs> and uh, that was the line that sold. They want to play against the best. And so I signed professionally in 1968 as the Dodgers number one draft choice. So one of the stories you tell in the book and you talk about your time in the Cape Cod league and I've, my wife uh, is from that area. And so I've been to many Cape Cod league games Tell me a little bit about your experience in the Cape Cod League. And then there's one specific story you tell about uh, Thurman Munson in the book. Maybe you could tell us about that a little bit. Well, it's an amazing happenstance. Uh, serpent, serendipitous actions uh, lead to uh, future events, I guess. Uh, I was playing high school as a junior baseball, that was. This was one of the sunny days that we got to play. Uh, and the Providence uh, assistant baseball coach and assistant hockey coach at the time was at the game watching one of my uh, competitors play on, on the other team. He was the nephew of uh, a friend of the coach who came to Stanford to have an Easter dinner, I think, and then stayed over to watch the baseball game. And I had one of those games where you know, I was able to run around the bases a lot and make plays and throw and, and hit. And um, after the game, this college coach came over to me and said, Hey, are your parents here? And I said, as a matter of fact, they are. He said, I'd like to talk to him. And when we went to talk to him, he said he was going to be coaching uh, Yarmouth in the Cape Cod league 
which was a college league. And he wanted to know if my mom and dad would allow me to go under his wing and uh, play in, in Cape Cod. I was going to be after my junior year in high school and um, I didn't know where Cape Cod was. Uh, I'll be <laughs> truthful. And um, uh, it, it, it sounded cool. And we researched it later. And my mom and dad took the advice of my aunt and uncle who had vacationed near Cape Cod at one time and said, oh, it'd probably be a great place to go play baseball. And I guess with uh, my high school coach who understood what was going on and other advice, I went and uh, I got to play for Lou Lamorello, who was a 24-year-old college assistant coach at the time. Many of you know him now as a NHL Hall of Famer who's still a president of the the New York Islanders. Um, So I got to play there. Uh, I was in awe. Uh, off the field, but I was uh, trying to compete on the field. I did well enough to um, have all those scouts who were in Cape Cod during the summer come back the next high school season to sit in the cold and watch me play baseball uh, for my high school team. And uh, yeah, there was that one team up in uh, Chatham that had a, a very talkative catcher behind the plate. And I was a high school guy and I never heard a catcher talk to a hitter. And um, as I was standing uh, in the before I went into the batter's box for my first at bat, the catcher was telling me that uh, he really liked the catch that I had made on the last out of the previous inning. And I ran into left center field as a center fielder and I made this catch up against the wall. And it was the third out and I was excited running in and he was kind of congratulating me on the catch as the pitcher was warming up. And I was saying, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And then I got into the bat, bat, batter's box and he continued to talk to me. And I kind of stepped out and looked at the umpire and, uh, you know, he said, let's go get in, in, in the box. And what he was saying as I got into the box was, um, you know, that was a good catch, but why don't you go over and stand at the fence where you made that catch? I'll hit one over your head next <laughs> inning. And uh, I grounded out the short. I ran down the first. I got back to the bench. I said to my uh, teammates, who were all college guys, I said, geez, that guy was talking to me the whole time I was uh, at the plate. I never had anybody talk to me like that. And uh, Buddy Pippen, uh, this UConn second baseman that that was on our team, kind of chuckled. And he says, yeah, he talks all the time. I said, well, what's his name? And he said, his name's Thurman Munson. And it just went right over my head. I never heard the name Thurman before, and I never, you know, was able to write down Thurman Munson. Well, anyway, I went out out the field the next inning, and I was playing catch with the right fielder, and uh, we got through playing catch, and now the first pitch of the inning was uh, going to be made to the leadoff hitter, who was the fourth-place hitter in the lineup, and he swung and hit a ball right where I had caught the previous ball. And yet when I stopped at the fence and looked up and saw the ball going over the fence, it dawned on me that the catcher just told me the inning before that he was going to do that. Exactly what he told you he was going to do. It it was, it was exactly what he told me. And here's the footnote to the story. Uh, You go years later and um, uh, now I'm a manager uh, with Mets and during a winter time charity uh, event, for the Thurman Munson dinner um, after he had passed away, I was the recipient of the Thurman Munson award. And when I got to the microphone and I 
told everyone how appreciative I was of getting the award and how Thurman was such a great player that I got to play against in the American League. And uh, he, he, he left us much too soon. I then told the story of Cape Cod. And when I got through telling the story, I went to sit down at the head table and Thurman's Munson came over and gave me a big hug. She was crying a little. And I looked at her and said, uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. This award's great. And she said, no, you don't understand. Thurman told that story hundreds of times to people, his, his friends and family, and no one ever believed him that he called the shot and you were the guy at home plate, which he never mentioned. And why would he? I was just a high school player at the time. <laughs> and I never mentioned it to him during, I guess, uh, or playing, playing against each other. And so she said, now we have all these people and his friends getting verification of the story that many people thought Thurman was just exaggerating. <laughs> so one of the things that I was really impressed with in reading the book was just how many figures over the last 75 years of baseball history that you've been lucky enough to cross paths with at one time or another. And one of the things that I, one of the parts of the book that I found the most interesting was when you talked about your time on the Dodgers and your friendship with Bill Buckner. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You call him Billy Buck. Oh, Billy Buck. Yeah. You know, Bill, I was the number one draft choice of the Dodgers. He was number two. Uh, he felt he should be a number one draft choice and he had a chip on his shoulder from the first day he ever got to Ogden, Utah. Uh, you know, we were teammates. We, we battled for batting championships in the minor leagues together. We played in the Arizona, Arizona instructional league together. We were roommates in college together. We were roommates in the big leagues together. Um, uh, we were, we were Velcroed at the hip, you know, he, he and I, um, we're on, we're on that path. You know, we, we went uh, from rookie ball. I went to triple A the next year. He went to double A. Then the third year we played in triple A together. We battled out for the, the batting title at the end of the year. We got called up to the big leagues together. We uh, start, we entered fraternity of Sigma Chi together. Um, uh, we, we did stuff um in in those formative years that uh, connect people and connect them for life and um he he was uh, one of the coolest guys i i've ever been around cool in the fact that um um he never he never dressed to be the coolest or you know wanted to uh say the things that were the coolest but he had a uniqueness and a uh determination about him that um that separated him from, from everyone else. Um, he was a great guy. He was a great player. It was, um, as we know now, it was a, a, a sin against nature, uh, the way the press treated him um, in Boston after that um, um, ridiculous little ground ball that went through his legs. Um, it would have been a hit anyway. Uh, no way he beats uh, Mookie to the bag and he didn't throw the wild pitch, et cetera, et cetera, and didn't lose game seven, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, he had to carry that cross. And, and I thought that that was um, as as cruel a, a human experience as anybody ever had to experience. And deserves to be remembered for more than just that one moment in the 86 World Series batting champion, all, you know, all star, all of those types of things. Absolutely. Uh, somebody else you crossed paths with maybe in a little bit less friendly way was Frank Robinson. And you talk a little bit about that in the book. What was the relationship like with Frank Robinson? 
Well, you know, for years, I I, I was associated with Frank. We played with the, uh, together with the Dodgers. Uh, we got traded to the Angels together. Um, uh, he later, you know, became the um, speed-up czar in baseball together. I loved his wife. Uh, uh, we, we've had, we had uh, you know, a lot of great experiences together, but we had a bad experience in California, mainly because as I look back now, I kind of understand it. Um, he felt he was going to be the manager of the California Angels because Harry Dalton was the general manager at the time of the Angels. And Harry and Frank were together in Baltimore when Frank was the MVP of the uh, of the Baltimore Orioles. And so uh, when the trade was made the, from the Dodgers and Frank was at the end of his career, uh, to the Angels, I was in the trade for Andy Messersmith, um, and I was kind of at the start of my career, if you will, and he was at the towards the end of his career. And um, instead of becoming the manager of the uh, Angels at the time, or even maybe the future manager, the Harry Dalton went out on a limb and hired a college uh, coach to be the manager of the team, the first time ever. And the first time since, I guess, that a college uh, coach uh, went right from the collegiate ranks to the major leagues. The guy whose name was Bobby Winkles. <laughs> and, um, you know, Bobby was, Bobby was going to uh, do things a little differently. You know, he was going to speed up the game, a matter of fact. He wanted people not to get out of the box to take signs and not to get off of the bag when they slid into the base to dust their dirt off. And one of pitchers running on and off the field and pe people running from the bullpen into the game. And, um, you know, because he was different and changes what people like the least in life, especially when you're set in doing things, there was a group of um, uh, players on the team. And Frank was one of them who were older and a little longer in the tooth. And they didn't like this idea of this young guy coming in and um, telling him what to do. And uh, so he was kind of against Bobby Winkles and I was Bobby's pet. And um, we, we had situations where we clashed. And at one time I even said something stupid at a Kiwanis or maybe key club um, rotary club or, who knows, one of those breakfasts that you have in the basements of a church uh, in, in an innocuous little setting where someone said, so how's Frank doing leading uh, the team? And I said, well, he's not really leading it that much. He's dividing it because uh, he's not on board with the manager. And uh, that being said, somehow someone uh, wrote it down, put it in a newspaper in Santa Ana when I came to the ballpark the next day. And I was in uh, on crutches, by the way, and my leg was in a cast. It was after I had broken my leg, and that's, I guess, why I was out on the speaking tour for the Angels. Um, when I got there, uh, there were some frowns, and, uh, you know, Frank had one of them, and uh, Harry Dalton had another, and we, I was called to the principal's office, and Bobby Winkles was standing there, sitting there, and I said what I thought. And when we left, the, uh, the office... Um, we wound up discussing it in a very, very face-to-face um, -face manner, rolling around on the clubhouse floor, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Frank, Frank. And, then, you know, after that, Frank and I were, were of course, friends and uh, lived in baseball together. 
So I, I want to sort of fast forward a little bit to sort of towards the end of your playing days. And, you know, obviously later you manage the Mets. So you're well steeped in sort of New York baseball lore. You were a part maybe somewhat tangentially in 1977 of one of the most infamous days in Mets history, the the midnight massacre when Tom Seaver was traded to the Reds. You were part of another big trade that day. You came to the Mets in exchange for, I believe it was Dave Kingman, right? Yeah, which would have been a really big trade had it not uh, been a couple hours after the announced after the Seaver trade. So Kingman, who's a spectacular guy and an a obvious uh, today's player home run hitter, he was able to walk. He was able to hit home runs at a great pace, and he also struck out a bit. And um, uh, he was a good base runner. He, I mean, he was a really good player, but. Uh, he was a USC guy. Tom Seaver was a USC guy. Coincidentally, I had gone to USC. There you uh, go. All three of us didn't mind speaking our piece uh, uh, during those days. And when the Mets decided to clean house, they they got rid of two of the, the most vocal people in the clubhouse. And, um, and I came back along with Paul Siebert, a left-handed re- relief pitcher, uh, for a, a trade which was as lopsided as any trade anybody ever made, Kingman for Valentine and Siebert. And that was after I had broken my leg. Uh, my ankle had deteriorated. I was um, uh, on about one and a half legs as a baseball player and uh, not very functional. Uh, yet there was this, you know, the, the, the scouting wasn't as great as it, as it uh, is today. And so there was, uh, you know, memories of what I was like in high school and what I was like when I was first with the Dodgers. And, you know, this is four years after I broke my leg that never even got close to uh, getting back to hundred percent. So they, they, they got the real raw end of that deal. That's for sure. <laughs> so after your playing career is over, you're going to coaching and let's, let's stick with the Mets here for a second in 85, uh, before you became the manager of, the Rangers, you were a coach with the Mets in 85, um, you know, part, you know, into part of the 85 season. And I want to ask, and there's been a lot of renewed attention to that team the last few months. There's an ESPN documentary and all that stuff. What did you kind of get the feeling coaching that met being a coach on that Met team in 85, that that was a special group? Oh yeah. I, you know, I was a minor league coach in 82, I believe. And then, uh, with George Bamberger and later uh, Frank Howard, I was a third base coach with the uh, Mets in maybe 83, 84, and then 85. Um, and so I saw the development of, of the group. And, you know, when Davey Johnson got there, who was the AAA manager, who had a lot of these young guys AAA uh, and would say, wait until Dwight Gooding gets here. Hey, wait until uh, Straw gets here. I guess Straw was already there, but um, you know there there was this momentum that was building not only in attitude but in, in talent. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you saw it coming. Heck, that um, eighty four team was okay, but eighty five team um, you know was built to win, and they won a lot of games. They didn't uh, maybe ninety something games. Yeah, high nineties. Yeah, I, I left in uh, in May uh, to manage the Texas Rangers, but uh, it, it was the makings. There, there was no doubt uh, 
they they had it all going and uh, and Davey had the right mentality for a, a group that uh, needed to be free in spirit but uh, also uh, needed to go out and, and play with a, a, a great flair and, and spirit yeah so I want to get back to the sort of the, you know the the met the Mets in the 90s but I want to divert real quick to just a couple other things in the eighties, when you were in Texas and you write about this in the book was sort of the beginning of what's become known as the steroids era. And you write a lot in the book, talk a lot in the book about steroids. And you're very kind of critical of the way that major league baseball handled the steroids issue through the years, particularly the Mitchell report. Talk to me maybe about some of what your problems were about how baseball handled the steroids thing over the 15 to 20 or so years that it was so prominent. You know, again, um, no one knew. Uh, steroids were always out in front of the science. So um, the, the guys that were, were doing it uh, were doing it uh, kind of in a, in a unknown world and that it was just uh, improving their performance. Uh, you know, that, that seemed to be the way of the world. Uh, let's do whatever it is, whether it's uh, get a weight room or, or drink an energy drink or, or later do steroids. Um, uh, why not improve performance was the way uh, many people, I think, uh, looked at the that situation at the beginning. And, um, you know, there, there was no guidance. And um, there, there was um, even, I think, a free hand that that it was um, OK to do what whatever was being done, because there was there is never the memo to say, hey, look for this. And if you see this, make sure you you report it or. If uh, if there's something that looks wrong, uh, it looks different. Maybe you should uh, tell someone about it. Uh, it was more like um, let's let's see how much we can improve the performance. And you know, I I just think that um, rather than coming clean and saying, hey, we're all guilty uh, in this situation, I think Major League Baseball took the um, the. Uh, took the opinion or took the um, step, if you will, to say, hey, it wasn't our fault. It was their fault. And they happen to be some of the greatest players to ever play the game. And um, when when you you think about, um, you know, Roger Clements, who won seven Cy Youngs, has to be uh, thought as, as something um, – of an outlier being the only guy who's doing it. I don't know how many of the hitters that he struck out were doing the same thing he was doing, or, you know, Barry Bonds, the greatest hitter that I ever saw um, that they were going to pin the whole thing on him uh, who, you know, was just spectacular his entire career and, and probably got, uh, got blown away by uh, his ability to, um, to improve his important his performance, but you know when when people say that uh, they had no idea what was going on and it was just this this little um, you know underground movement by the players, I just I don't think that that was uh, genuine. You know, and I will say that um, this this podcast is worth it for me already because I got to hear Bobby Valentine defend Roger Clemens. And (laughs) as a a high school senior during the 2000 World Series, I never thought I would see the day. Talk to me a little bit about your time with the Mets. Just, you know, those three years, you you say, especially the 99 team has a special time in your heart. Why don't we get into that real quick? 
Well, you know, I mean, 99, uh, we were, we were building something special once again. Uh, 97 was okay. 98 was better. 98, 99, we felt, uh, yeah, we, we have now built something. And we had a lot to hang our hat on, you know. And one of the things was that we had this really special group of infielders who um, who rallied around John Olerud, who was um, – the first, the first baseman on the team who had the greatest range of anybody I ever saw play first. And I mean, range at the bag, not mm-hmm. range off the bag. He, he saved more throws and made more plays um, look routine than I think anyone who ever played the game. And then you had Alfonso and you had Robin Ventura who, who can make the play uh, coming in on the slow roller as well as Brooks Robinson. And I think that the two of them were kind of in that, in that class uh, alone. Um, and, and then of course the spectacular Ray Ordonez working with Edgardo Alfonso uh, to see smiles and friends working together and, and not being afraid to have a little flair as they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It was a team that you could love. It was a team that you, that, did things together uh, without any, uh, you know, great fanfare, except for when uh, Mike Piazza came to the plate, yep. because Mike Piazza was always, um, you know, always had a bigger spotlight than anyone else and deservingly so. And then one more question I have to close with. Just tell me a little bit what happened in Boston. That was a, probably one of the toughest years of your career in uh, 2012, managing that team. Why do you think things went so poorly there? Uh, I don't think it, it wasn't that tough a year to manage. It was that tough a year to get through the year. You know, <laughs> there were there were no players on the team by the end of the year. Obviously, mm-hmm. if you look and see what happened, I think we were fifty three and fifty one at one time during that season. And then, um, you know, using the most players I think in baseball history at the time, uh, trading away about five players who were pretty good. Uh, it, or even better than pretty good, you know, there in August and having um, the task of kind of weeking, weeding out the week. That was yeah. really my job to go in and, and correct the bad situation that was there before I got there. And um, I think that uh, history will look back on that. As a matter of fact, there's a cool documentary that's being made about that season um, that I think uh, – is going to expose some of the stuff that uh, that really happened there uh, that I was I was part of, but um, I think um, people will get to see uh, exactly what part I had to play. Absolutely, we'll look forward to that. Well, uh, Bobby Valentine, thank you so much. Uh, the book is out val- uh, November thirtieth, Valentine's Way: My Adventurous Life and Times by. Bobby Valentine with Peter Golenbach. I will just mention in passing that November is a very big month for Mr. Valentine. In addition to the 30th, he also has a big event coming up in uh, November 2nd with the Stanford mayoral, mayoral election. So best of luck to you there as well, sir. And thank you so much for joining us on Hello Old Sports. Yeah, my pleasure. Good luck to you and your podcast. I hope your viewers like the book. Absolutely. Thank you, Bobby. Take care. Thank you. Bye now. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman. 
aka the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.